As we just saying this, we know one of the important aspects of worship together as a church family is to sing things we know. It's to remind ourselves of truths that we believe and to sing those truths to one another, to encourage one another with the truth of God's word. And so we have done that and we're grateful for our worship team to lead us in that. Today we are continuing in a series through Jeremiah, which is a prophetic book in the Old Testament. It's known as a major prophet because of its length. It's 52 chapters long, and we have been reading it as part of our church-wide reading, uh, Bible reading plan. And so that's where we're at, um, walking through Jeremiah. Today we'll be in chapter 32, so I invite you to turn over to Jeremiah chapter 32 with me. Uh, Jeremiah has to be, at this point, discouraged. He has uh, found himself imprisoned in the courtyard of the guard in the palace of King Zedekiah, the king of Judah. We read about that in the first part of chapter 32. And what has landed him in imprisonment like this is preaching the truth that God has spoken to him, which is that God is going to bring punishment on Judah for their disobedience. But believe it or not, the whole of Jeremiah is actually a word about hope. That though they're going to go through a dark time and though they're going to have their challenges that have been brought about by their own sin, God is still a God of hope. God is still bringing something good their way. And that's where we get the verse in Jeremiah twenty nine eleven that we uh, may know so well. God has plans and the pr- plans to prosper God's people. But at this point in Jeremiah's ministry, it had to look somewhat bleak. And so God comes to Jeremiah and gives him this word, starting in verse 6. Jeremiah says, The word of the Lord came to me. Hanamel, son of Shalom, your uncle, is going to come to you and say, Buy my field at Anathoth, because because as nearest relative it is your right and duty to buy it. Then, just as the Lord had said, my cousin Hanamel came to me in the courtyard of the guard and said, Buy my field at Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin, since it is your right to redeem it and possess it, buy it for yourself. I knew that this was the word of the Lord, so I bought the field at Anathoth from my cousin Hanamel and weighed out for him 17 shekels of silver. I signed, I signed and sealed the deed, had it witnessed, and weighed out the silver on the scales. I took the deed of purchase, the sealed copy containing the terms and conditions, as well as the unsealed copy, and I gave this deed to Baruch, son of Neriah, the son of Mahasa, in the presence of my cousin Hanamel and of the witnesses who had signed the deed and of all the Jews sitting in the courtyard of the guard. In the presence, I gave Baruch these instructions. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Take these documents, both the sealed and unsealed copies of the deed of purchase, and put them in a clay jar so they will last a long time. For this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Houses, fields, and vineyards will again be bought in this land. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. As you are, we do have Kingdom Kids today, which is our ministry for those who are four years old through second grade. So if you have any four-year-olds through second graders here today, they can head this way, as you can see 
Bye, Benjamin. We'll see you later, buddy. Y'all have fun. They're going to go next door and have a good time uh, upstairs of our Christian Life Center right next door. Parents, you can pick them up there after the service today. (laughs) And they're going to have so much fun over there that we're all jealous, right? What if we just all showed up over there? Our poor kingdom kid workers, they'd be distraught. They'd say, this is not for you. Go back and listen to the preaching of God's word. And so you're here to do that. Thank you. Uh, Today, um, this is a challenging section in Jeremiah because things don't look good. Uh, Not only is Jeremiah imprisoned, but what's taking place in this very moment is that there is a guy named Nebuchadnezzar. He is the king of the Babylonians. The Babylonians are the biggest superpower in the world at the time. And they are attacking Jerusalem. Jerusalem has been under siege for over a year at this point. There's a little break in the action. And it seems that this is when uh, the king over Judah, uh, Hezekiah is, or or, excuse me, Zedekiah is uh, dealing with Jeremiah. Because Jeremiah had been saying, this is going to happen. This is exactly what's going to happen. Babylon's going to come. God is using them to punish us. And what we all need to do is just accept that. Accept that God has sent these foreign troops into our land as discipline. We need to accept that. And know that it's going to be a while before we get to come back to our homeland. Because we're going to be exiled. Not as the false prophet said, two years. But in fact, it's going to take 70 years for us to get back to our homeland. So all these promises of God are for you. But they're really for your kids and your grandkids to remain faithful to God now because it will pay off for your children and your children's children. That kind of sets up the context of what's happening in Jeremiah's prophetic ministry, that he is going to be given this uh, symbolic act that God wants him to perform in buying this piece of land and what it represents. And I believe it has something to speak to us today. And I was just thinking about this, Uh, we've talked about it before, is that we don't always uh, try to orchestrate our songs, but God often does. And we just sang about the promises of God, and now today we are talking about the promises of God. That is under God's providence, to bring those things together. Because that's what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about, we're going to look at the promises that God has made, uh, both to Jeremiah and how that might apply to us. That when you have that promise from God, And because it is from God, you can count on that promise. And when you have that kind of guarantee, what difference it can make in our lives. So let's just pause and pray before we jump into that. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come to your word and and I pray that we come hungry to hear from you. Uh, Desiring a word that you speak to us in this moment in our lives. Both as individual uh, folks who have gathered here today, but also for us as a church family. That you would speak your word of promise into our situation. That we might see that you are good and you intend to do good. Even if we are suffering under our own sin or circumstances in life or challenging, it doesn't change your nature. And so, Father, we come to you wanting to hear what, what promise... Have you made to us, Lord? 
What have you said to us that we can count on? When there's so much in our lives, so much in the world around us that seems flimsy, we want to stand on the rock that is your word, to hear your truth, to claim your promises, that that might set the direction of our lives today and in the coming days. So we just, we seek you, Father. We seek your Holy Spirit to come and speak. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, I'll be honest with you, I don't know a whole lot about real estate, but I've always heard the saying that the number one rule in real estate is, do you know the answer? What's the answer? It's three words. It's the same word repeated three times. (laughs) Those aren't the same words. Location, location, location. You knew that. Come on. You guys knew that, right? That's what makes this such a strange uh, moment for Jeremiah. Again, remember, he's imprisoned by King Zedekiah uh, for, for preaching about God's disciplinary action against Judah. He is literally in chains. Uh, and there is a siege of the world's superpower that has been going on for a year. And now God gives him these directives Go and buy this field. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm thinking a good purchase, if I'm thinking real estate market, if I'm thinking investment for the future, I don't want to buy land in a war-torn area. The location, location, location is not ideal. But God is not trying to prosper him in that way. He's trying to set up a promise to let him know that, you know what? Though you're going to be exiled, so all the people in Jerusalem, or not all, but many of the people in Jerusalem, they're going to be sent out. They're going to be exiled. And because they are exiled and sent out, uh, they are hoping to return. And maybe somebody can help me with the light. I see everybody's looking at the light, flashing. Can you figure out which one it is? The one that's flashing, if we could turn that one off. (laughs) Oh, man, got to love it. They're on it. We have such a good work AV team, by the way. If I have a seizure here, y'all, <laughs> just just let me be. I'll recover fine. No no problem. Just keep turning them off till one of them stops. It'll be fine. Yeah, there we go. See, see how good they are. Give them a hand. We don't clap enough for the people in the sound booth. It, it can be a thankless job, but y'all, y'all are doing a great. Thank you. And that's actually my fault. I saw it flash earlier. I thought, I need to go turn those off, and then I never did, so that's my bad. But they, they fixed my bad, so thank you very much. Okay, now i got to figure out where I was. What was I talking about? I don't even remember now. Um, location, that's right. Thank you. Thank you. Y'all are just thinking about your next land purchase, aren't you? Uh so if you put yourself in Jeremiah's shoes, and I think this is a helpful practice when you read the Bible, just think, about, well, what, what would it have been like to have been them? What would it have been like to be Jeremiah? You, you're doing the things God's called you to do. Uh, you find yourself in trouble for it. And now God has given you this task that, you know, go and buy this land that's essentially worthless. He's just throwing money away. Uh, I did the math on this. I don't know what silver was worth then. 
But if you bought it that same amount of silver today, uh, I think it's only like a couple hundred bucks. It's really not that much. But still, he's throwing money away. He's buying land from a relative that uh, he's going to have no use for because he's going to be exiled. He's going to be sent out of his home city, his home country. All of Judah's, not all, but many of the folks in Judah are going to be sent out. They're going to be exiled. And, and the hope is that they will return. And God is using this in that moment to help them to embrace the reality that they will be able to come back. That in the darkest moments, I want you to cling to this hope, this promise that you will be able to come back. Now, when I think about us, uh, I don't know if you have done this before, but there are a lot of promises in the Bible. And those promises can be very meaningful to us. That when we're going through a dark season, when we're going through challenges, when life is unsure for us, it sure is helpful to grab onto something solid. And that is what the promises of God are intended to do. That if God makes a promise to us, he, he intends to keep it. Now, some promises are unconditional. He will fulfill them no matter what. And some promises are conditional. We have our end to play. And if we do our part, God will do his part. Uh, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. That's in, the, in Proverbs. Now, what does that tell us? It tells us God will give us the desires of our heart, but it's conditional. If we delight ourselves in him, right? But some promises are unconditional. But the intention either way is to give us something solid. When, when a lot around us seems unsteady, God gives us his promises as something steady to hold on to. So I want us to look at this uh, unique section here of promises that God makes through Jeremiah to the people in Jerusalem who will eventually be sent out of Jerusalem, exiled in Babylon, and talk a little bit about how those promises can be applied to our lives as well. Now, we've got to be careful here because not all promises in the Old Testament apply to us today. Some promises were for specific people. Some promises were for a specific group of people like Israel. But I think the promises we actually find here in Jeremiah 32 that God makes to Judah and God's remnant that will return back, uh, I think these promises actually do apply to us. And I think you'll see that uh, as we go through. And so I want you to flip over with me to verse 38. What are these promises that are made through Jeremiah to these people? I want to start in verse 38. And this is no small promise. They will be my people and I will be their God. They will be my people and I will be their God. To know that God wants that kind of relationship with us. That even if he's disciplining us, even if circumstances in life are challenging, even if he feels, uh, even if he feels distant. The truth of God's word is that he wants us to be his people and he wants to be our God. He wants that kind of relationship with us. And so we see this as the, a, a promise that we can claim today. How do we know that? Because God sent Jesus into the world to deal with the sin that separates us from God. To draw us to God. 
He would not do that if he did not want a relationship with us. But because he wants a relationship with us, he provided a way for us to have that relationship. And this is really no different than any human earthly relationship. If someone sins against you, does it not fracture the relationship? Does it not do harm to the connection you have with that person? Isn't there some forgiveness that needs to be had in the midst of that relationship in order to move forward? We'll see, it's no different with God. But God is not only the one who offers their forgiveness, he's the one that pays the price for the sin in the first place. Why? Because he wants to be our God and he wants us to be his people. He wants that relationship with us. The second promise we see, just in the very next verse, I will give them singleness of heart and action so that they will always fear me and that all will go well for them and for their children after them. Now, this first little part, I will give them singleness of heart and action. What he's saying is, is that I'm going to do something different. See, God and God's people had been operating off of what we call the old covenant, which is also where we get the word uh, testament from. So we call the Bible Old Testament, New Testament. It divides along the lines of these covenants. And in the Old Covenant or in the Old Testament, there's the promise that one day there will be a new covenant, a new testament, a new way of relating to God that is different. And in fact, if you just flip back to the previous chapter in chapter 31, in chapter 31, verse 31, This is what Jeremiah says. He says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the old covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt because they broke my covenants. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel at that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. And then back to chapter 32, I will give them singleness of heart and action. Now, what's he saying? Under the old way of relating to God, it was a conditional covenant. God's people had to uphold their end in order for God to uphold his end. But this new covenant is going to be different. This new covenant isn't based on whether or not we can uphold our end of things. It's going to be based solely on the desire of God to uphold his end of things and uphold our end of things. This is a significant change in the covenant. If you want to know that God is your God and that you're his people, it no longer relies on your obedience. How good you are, how well you follow God's commands. That's the old covenant. The new covenant is it relies simply on this. Do you trust that Jesus was good enough for you? That Jesus fulfilled those commands for you? That Jesus fulfilled the covenant on your behalf. A covenant's agreement between two parties. When that agreement was made, they would take an animal, they would cut it in half. Both parties would walk through, walk between those two halves of the animal. And the symbolic action is that if anyone breaks this covenant, let what happens to this animal happen to us. If, if we don't uphold our end of the covenant... Let what happens to this animal happen to me. In the new covenant, God's the only one that passes between the two. And what we see in the Bible is that when we didn't uphold our end, 
in the New Testament, in Jesus, he is torn in two. When he's going to the cross, what is he doing? He is upholding our end of the covenant that we could not uphold. So God is both the covenant giver and he's the covenant fulfiller. He's doing both of these things. So what we see in verse 39, and then also in a portion of verse 40, at the end of verse 40, we, we read about how, how, uh, how because of this new covenant with us, that we will never turn away from God again. What's being said here is that God is going to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. God is going to fulfill the covenant demands that we could not fulfill on our own. So if we want to be his people and we want him to be our God, the good news is it no longer relies on us. The promise of God is that now it relies upon him and all we are called to do is trust, believe that Jesus has fulfilled it for us. Now, there's even more promises. There's two more significant promises in this little section of Jeremiah 32. The next one is in verse 40, where we read, I will make an everlasting covenant with them. And that everlasting covenant is another way of talking about the new covenant. But then we read this, I will never stop doing good to them. I will never stop doing good to them. Look at verse, the very first part of verse 41. I will rejoice in doing them good. The promise of God is that he is a good God who intends good things for you and for me. That is a promise of God. We read that even in the New Testament in James. It says that every good gift comes from God. Now, I'm going to get to this in a minute, but, but our inner cynic can rise up and we can say, oh, really? Well, what about this? And what about this? And what about this? And what about this? And we can list all the things that we may be disgruntled about or displeased about or all the ways in which we think God's not holding up our end. And again, what we turn back to again and again is to see that, yes, but look at the cross. Look at what God has done for us in Jesus. Look at the future that he's holding out for us. Look at this everlasting new covenant. Look at all of all that God has done for us. And trust that if there's things he's not doing that we wish he would do, if there's promises that in our mind he's not fulfilling at this very moment, that it doesn't mean that he's not at work on behalf of our good. It's to trust when things don't look good that God is still good. It's to trust that when things don't look good, God is still doing good. Is to trust these words. I will never stop doing them good. In fact, God says, I rejoice in doing them good. And not always, but often enough, I think it's helpful for us to pause and think about the ways in which God has done us good. To remind ourselves of the ways in which God has blessed our life. To not take for granted the very fact that you and I are sitting here breathing air, that we will get in a car and we will have lunch, most likely, right? That we'll go home to a a warm house. That we have people in our life that care about us. That one after another, if we were to pause and really think about it, and really be open to it, that we could be honest and, and start listing one after another, the good things God has done for us. God says, I will never stop doing good. 
I rejoice in doing them good. The fourth and final. The fourth and final promise that I want us to look at in this section. We've already read over it a little bit, but it says at the beginning of verse 40 of Jeremiah 32, I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Now what I see there is that what God is doing that is good will not end, but in fact will only get better. That this everlasting covenant that is not dependent on your obedience or mine, it is only dependent on what Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross. That if we believe that, if we have faith in that, then this covenant, this relationship with God, that He's our God and and we are His people, that He is doing good in our life now, that in the future it's going to be even better. That God has a plan for an eternity that includes you and me. That even all the suffering in the world, if it were dumped in your lap for 80 years, you could say, but I have eternity ahead of me where there will only be the blessing of God. Now just really think about that for a second. Really just pause and think about it. Let's say, and I don't think this describes all of us, but let's just say it did. Let's just say for 80 years, because that's kind of about the expected average lifespan, 80, 85 years, I think, something like that, depending on if you're male or female or what have you. Uh, imagine that all those years were just the worst. They're just terrible. Just a little exercise. Just think about it for a second. What if it really was the worst of the worst? The, the very worst things you could possibly think of happens to you every day for 80 years. That's obviously terrible and horrible, right? Now, now imagine that after that 80 years, because of one thing, you trust in Jesus, you get an eternity of God's presence and blessing where sin will never touch you again. Yours or anyone else's where circumstances will never be bleak again. Or each day is better than the previous. Now, now just imagine that that was your experience. Now, on the whole, would you say God is good? If you had 80 years and it didn't go so great, but then you had an eternity that was absolutely awesome and you can't even fathom it now, would you say God is good? How could you not? Sometimes we get so fixated on the circumstances we're in right now in this minute that we forget to look up and see that we have an everlasting God who's made an everlasting covenant with us, who has promised us that for everlasting, for an eternity, he will be our God, we will be his people, and glory will be ours. We'll be in his presence in heaven. And when I think about it, I can't even imagine how awesome it's going to be. And if I, if I had to take it on the whole, I'd say even if life here on earth was really terrible for a very long time, but I got an eternity with God that was purchased for me, that all I had to do was receive that gift of free salvation purchased by Jesus on my behalf, I would say God is good. God is good that he would do that for me, even though things have not been so easy in this life. Look, he has made an everlasting covenant. 
that depends not on my performance, but on what Christ has done for me. Now, like I said, I think in each of us, at least, uh, at least in me, let me talk about me instead of all of you. And you can just identify if you, if you identify great, if not, uh, just know at least there's one, one person who thinks along these lines, which is the lines of a cynic. I, I, I can, I can be a little cynical sometimes. I can read the promises of God in the Bible and and think to myself, yeah, right. Oh, really? Well, when's that going to happen? I can think that sometimes. You know, if I let God correct me, I can get on with the truth of it. But my mind can go there. Well, what about this? What about that? I don't know that Jeremiah was a cynic, but you see something happening in Jeremiah that kind of points to this reality that it can be hard to believe the promises of God all the time. It can be difficult, especially when your life is difficult. Or maybe you just have a natural bent towards cynicism to readily agree that God is good all the time. That God is eager to do good. That he rejoices in doing good. You you may have a hard time. You may be the one sitting in the pew right now saying, yeah, right, and I get that. Because I, I can be that way too sometimes. More often than I'd probably like to admit. So what do we do with that? How do we handle the challenge of a promise given that we may not feel like is a promise yet received? I think Jeremiah helps us with this. Uh, how so? We skipped over a pretty good section of Jeremiah 32, so I want to go back and cover it. Go back to... Jeremiah 32, verse 16. Jeremiah has been given this symbolic act of purchasing land. Um, And then in verse 16, we read, After I had given the deed of purchase to Baruch, son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord. Now, this is something significant, I think, because... Only twice in all of Jeremiah do we read about Jeremiah's prayers to the Lord. This only happens twice. I'm not saying Jeremiah only prayed twice. I'm just saying when this was written down by Jeremiah, he made sure to include two prayers and only two prayers, and this is one of them. So I think something significant is happening here. What is this prayer? Verse 17. Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth. What does it mean to be sovereign? God, you're in charge. Not only are you in charge, but you have made everything here. How so? By your great power and outstretched arm, nothing is too hard for you. Now, I want to talk to the cynic. Whether you you, uh, are a cynic or not, I think it could be helpful. But I really want to speak to those who may have a hard time embracing that God is bent on doing you good, that his promises are sure when those promises are made and we're not yet experiencing it. What do we do? I think we do what Jeremiah does here and we claim what we know. We claim what we know. What he says is nothing is too hard for you. He says out loud in prayer what he believes about God. In fact, I've heard it say, I can't remember who said it. I should have looked it up, but I didn't because it just popped in my, in my mind. But someone once said 
that the most important thought you have in your mind is your thought when you think about God. That how you think about God is the most significant thing about your thought process. And so I think it's helpful to remind ourselves what we think about God. Now, what is that based in? It's based in truth of God's word. It can be based in experience. It can be based in what other people tell us of God. It can be based in in, uh, what we observe in the world. All that's true. But the absolute definitive truth that we base our belief about God on is what we find in the word of God because that is how God has chosen to speak to us is through the Bible. And so when we look at the Bible and it says that here, nothing is too hard for you. It is an acknowledgement of God that he is... Sovereign, he's in charge, he's powerful, he is creator, and nothing is too hard for you. When we're battling that inner cynic, I think it's helpful to say what we believe about God. And I think one of the things we can say is that, God, you're in charge, you've made all there is, you're more powerful, you are the most powerful, and nothing is too hard for you. So this promise you have made is not too hard for you. This promise that I'm having a hard time believing right now is not too hard for you. Nevertheless, that's the first thing. But the second thing that Jeremiah does that I also think is helpful is yet he knows that he can confess to God that he's struggling to believe. It's one of the things that I love most about the Bible and that I love most about God is that you really can talk to him about what's going on in your life. You don't have to sugarcoat it. You don't have to pretend. You don't have to use a different language and a different pitch in your voice. Oh, Heavenly Father. You, You can just talk to God. You can just tell God what you actually think, what your doubts are. And you see that example over and over again from the beginning of the Bible, even Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, all the way through. You can tell God what's really on your heart, what's on your mind. And so you you get the idea at the end of Jeremiah's prayer that he's struggling to believe. Remember, he's in chains. His city's been under siege for a year. He knows how it's going to end. God has already told him Babylon is going to, he's going to come in. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is going to come in. He's going to destroy the city. He's going to knock down the walls. He's going to destroy the temple. And it's going to be over for a long while. He already knows that. And God has called him to purchase land in the midst of those circumstances. And so he says in verse 25, this is the end of his prayer. He says, And though the city will be given into the hands of the Babylonians, you, sovereign Lord, say to me, buy the field with silver and have the transaction witnessed. See, he says what he knows about God, but yet he's honest with his doubts. I know that your arm is strong. Nothing is is beyond your reach. Nothing's too hard for you. Verse 17. But I'm struggling to believe what this action represents, that that you are going to bring us back, that we are going to experience this return. And as I I was kind of studying this a little bit, they made a good point that it wasn't maybe so much Jeremiah's doubt about uh, 
the weakness of their enemy. Babylon was the superpower. They were very impressive. That he, he most likely didn't doubt. His doubt represented here wasn't based on their weakness. And perhaps his doubt was based on what he knew about the character of his people. Right in the, in the middle of God's response to this, which we're going to get to in just a second. But in the middle of God's response to Jeremiah's prayer, he points out to them in verse 35, or verse, start in verse 34, they set up their vile images in the house that bears my name and defiled it. They built high places for Baal in the valley of Ben-Hinnom to sacrifice their sons and daughters to Molech. Though I neither commanded nor did it enter my mind that they should do such a detestable thing and so make Judah sin. We've talked about this before. That's how ugly idol worship was. That they would even come to the point where they would sacrifice their children on the altar of a false god. In Jeremiah's mind, he's probably thinking, there is no way, God, that you would bring us back. Look at our sin. Look at how far we've gone. And can I be honest? Sometimes that's a part of our cynicism. How would God fulfill his promise to me when this is my history, when this is my background, when my story looks like this? How could God ever, ever, ever bring me back? And I would remind you again, this is an unconditional covenant, the new covenant. The everlasting covenant is unconditional. It's not based on your past or your present or your future obedience or disobedience. It is based solely on the fact that Jesus did it right for you. So when God looks at you, he looks at you as if you are right. So what it means when the Bible says that we receive a righteousness that is not our own, it means Jesus did it right. We get credit for it. So if that's what Jeremiah is thinking and that's what you're thinking, the answer is the everlasting new covenant. It is not based on your obedience or mine. Based on what Jesus has done. Has done. It is finished. So if if your cynicism about the goodness of God comes from a place of, I'm not good enough, the answer from the cross is, yeah, I know, that's why I came. To be good enough for you. And your part in mine is to believe it. That's our part. To believe it. Now, in this context, I don't want to just bypass the fact that, again, one of only two times Jeremiah lists a prayer. And this is part of how we deal with the inner cynicism that might bubble up when we talk about God fulfilling his promises to us. He wants to be our God and he wants us to be his people. Everlasting covenant rejoices in doing us good. We're struggling to believe that. In the context of what's happening that I've said so far, do you see what he's doing? He is praying. Let let prayer be a part of how you deal with the inner cynicism. Let prayer be that place where you tell God what you believe about him and where you tell God where you doubt. I absolutely believe that that's why Jeremiah put this in his prophetic book is to remind us of the need to pray, to talk to God about these things. And the final thing that we see Jeremiah doing, of course, is he does, even in the midst of doubt, 
He does act in faith. He does purchase the land. He doesn't just do it symbolically. He does it legally. You read about all the steps in which they undergo. You know, they figure out the price. He pays the price. They weigh the price. They got a witness. They write out all the terms and conditions. Which I thought was kind of funny. Terms and conditions. It's actually in the Bible. It's not just like the thing that Google sends us when we have to say yes. We agree to sign our lives away to Google again. You know, it's not just that. Like all those details, it was a legal purchase. Just like the legal purchases that went on before and that would go on when they return. Now, what's the point here? The point is that this symbolic act was a real genuine act of faith, even in the midst of doubt. Did you know you can, you can have doubts and still be faithful to God? You can feel or you can experience inner cynicism and still do what God has called you to do. You know, when, when Jesus is in the garden, he says, not my will, but your will be done. That, 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 that is our model. Jeremiah, and more importantly, Jesus, is our model. To even though we are struggling to believe, we still act in faith. And I don't know if this is actually, uh, you're looking at like a, you know, biblical dictionary, if this is true or not, but it's just in my mind. I thought about this, that, that maybe that's the difference between belief and faith. Belief is what I know. Faith is what I do with what I know. I believe God is good and he's going to bless us and he's going to bring us back. And so I'm going to buy this land. And I wonder if there's just something, some promise of God that you would like to claim, but you're struggling with it. That you, that, that maybe, maybe, I thought about this for, 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 maybe as we go into a time of invitation in just a few seconds, maybe you would say, God, what is an act of faith you want me to take? I believe, but I'm struggling. What is an act of faith? What is that symbolic act? Yet is, yet it is rooted in something true and meaningful. What is that act of faith? That you want me to take. Even as I struggle. To believe. Here's what I know about God. And it's rooted in scripture. Romans 8. 32. That no matter what the act of faith is. No matter what the sacrifice is. That he's calling you. uh, To live out. No matter how hard it might be to believe. And yet act in faith. When doubts rise up. No matter all of that. What the word of God tells us is if God who gave us his son. Jesus. If he was willing to do that. Will he not give you all things? All things that you need. All things you need to have joy. All things you need to have a full life. All things you actually need, will he not, if he gave you Jesus, would he not give you all things? And I find in that promise a rock solid foundation from which I can stand and say that I believe all the promises of God, even if they're not fulfilled yet. I believe all, if he did that, I believe them all. And I will act in faith on what I believe. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this incredible, faithful servant of yours who suffered greatly, 
who struggle in ways that like we struggle to believe. And yet he was faithful to you. God, I pray that we would see in his testimony that we have this everlasting covenant with you through Jesus. And so if nothing else, if that is all we know of you, we know enough to be faithful. God, that you might take this moment of invitation and and prompt in us something you are calling us to be faithful to do. Even in the midst of our cynicism, in the midst of our doubt, in the midst of our uncertainty, that you would show us what is the next right step you are calling us to do. And we would just, by faith, take that step. Because if we know nothing else, we know this. You gave us your son, Jesus And if you are willing to do that for us, we can trust you with every single bit of our lives. And that's a promise we claim in the name of Jesus. Amen. So again, take this moment, take this invitation, a chance to talk to God. Where are those areas in which you're struggling to believe? What steps of faith is God calling you to take? And in prayer today that you might make a commitment to be faithful to that. If you need prayer, you can come down. I'd love to pray with you, pray where you're at. But just respond to the Lord this morning. Would you stand with me?